When I woke up this morning, I had this feeling of victory in my soul. And by the time I reached the kitchen for my coffee, I felt like a heavyweight champ. Welcome to another episode of At The Canton. And that's the with two E's. And I'm your host, the vinyl toast maker on turntables, the poet extreme, the maker of fanatics, and the king of my destiny, Aztec Parrot. But you can call me Parrot and never call me late for dinner. And sitting across from me in the Zoom room is the literature professor and professional librarian who seriously tries to read everything in print, Pinche Pancho Cardona. What up, everybody? He's just still sorry that the Giants are in first place. Hey, you Make know what? Run for it. No, we're not going to talk about baseball right now because... There's nothing to talk about. The Dodgers. Are There's a talk about. We're, we're watching all baseball movies. The Dodgers are going to take it. But yeah, we're going to watch baseball movies. So go ahead. You tell me. You tell me what we're doing. <laughs> okay. This is what we got going on today, everybody. So uh, we have, of course, every month we have three categories that we look at. We look at one new movie, which is the past couple years. years. Uh, we look at a mature movie for... Um, the past uh, 20 years, and then we have a mature movie, which is 30 years or longer. So in the new movie category this month, we're going to be looking at the late life, the Qian Ming Wang story. The mature movie is going to be Fences, and the classic movie is going to be Bang the Drum Slowly. They're all related to baseball because... We've been playing ball for about a month and a half now. And in the spirit of the season, we just thought would give May over to baseball. Yeah, baseball. That's right. So we're going to start off with a new movie. And the new movie that we we have chosen for this month's baseball theme show is Late Life, the Chen, Chen Ming Wang story. Uh, the Chen Ming Wang story is a, a 2018 Taiwanese-American documentary film directed by Frank W. Chen, which marks his feature film debut. The film, which of course is with subtitles, follows the later the latter years of professional baseball player Chen Ming Wang, the first and only Taiwanese player to be signed by the New York Yankees, where he developed in the minors for five years before making his debut in the majors in 2005 where he had two seasons with 19 victories before succumbing to injuries. Late life follows Wang as he struggles to make it back into the major leagues. And with his incredibly hard sinker, he was one of the best starting pitchers for the Yankees in 2006 and 2007. He almost won a Cy Young Award, losing only to Johan, Johan Santana. And so this is a story of an extraordinary man who is unwilling to give up and unable to let go of his past success. As told through interviews and stories to those who are closest to him, examining his role as an international player, a father, a son, and a reluctant national hero. Like the next great pitcher for the Yankees. 
Wong rounds third. He scores. It is a two-run base hit, and Wong got hurt running the bases. Wong is bent over at home plate, and the Yankees will have to go to the bullpen. He can barely walk. Too early. Hurt himself, and it never came back from it. He seemed like he had it, and it wasn't there. It was sad. And that's a little excerpt from the, the documentary that can be seen on Netflix right now. Um, you know what? I found I, I found this documentary to be very intriguing in that, if anything, it questioned me as a uh, as like a, a a Western viewer looking and trying to apply those same principles to this man who grew up in in, in Taiwan. And under a different, a uh, different type of culture, different type of values, and stuff like that. So, you keep that in mind when when anyone's watching this, because it can be interpreted. There, there could be various wrong interpretations uh, of this of this documentary. But um, I think one thing that I want to start off and explain with too is is late life. The term late life, which is actually uh, it's a baseball pitching term. And it refers to the, the movement of the ball when thrown by the pitcher, what the movement that it has, the closer it gets to the plate. So like if someone is throwing really hard, um, their, their pure strength is going to probably take it probably to about 75% of the distance between the, the, the pitcher's mound to the home plate. But then the spin is, is really going to start taking in, coming in. So that movement in those last, what, 15 feet or so, that's what they refer to late life. So if you have a good velocity and your, your, your spin rate is, is up there, you're going to be able to have a lot of movement. So that's what they refer to late life. But I think they're also referring to uh, this, um, the quandary that this athlete has, having his glory days really behind him. So they're defining him the later part of his life being the later part of his, his professional career. And I thought that was a, you know, I thought that was a, a good technique to kind of like, you know, get you into to, to watching the, the film. You know, one, one of the things that you notice is that this man who's, who's really, I mean, he's like a, a specimen. He's like, physically, he is a, a a specimen. He's he's also he's like a quiet giant. You know, he 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 speaks. He doesn't speak a lot of words. You know, he he never really kind of opens up and and gives out like the war stories about pitching in these mm. big games and stuff like that. But he just kind of like answers questions as, as the way they are. But you really see how he reacts to to the crowd, to his friends and family that he he really relies upon. And also um, how he reacts to the game itself when he's when he's inside the game. And it's yeah, that weird. was one of the. Um, it, it, he doesn't change emotions at all. That was one of the reasons why he was um, recruited to the Yankees, or why they wanted him to play for them, was because just his composure on the mound. And they found that he doesn't really get frustrated on the mound. Does he get angry? But if anything, he was able to become more competitive. The, the more he got into a jam, the more he would up his game. But emotionally, it wasn't, um, you, you know, some pitchers like to throw fits, but he always stayed composed, but was able to increase his velocity. So they really liked that sense of competitiveness for him. So I think that just shows, you know, that becomes uh, the driving force behind this whole documentary, like his his need to constantly compete and to have a goal and finish. Yeah. And I, I see that. Well, one of the things that we learn inside the film is that he is probably at, at the time that he's at the peak of his career, he's probably the, the internationally, probably the, the most well-known Taiwanese citizen in the world. You see how the Taiwanese people respond to his, to his uh, fame inside, inside uh, major league baseball. They become dedicated Yankee fans, and you know, there's. It, it reminds me a lot of like Fernando Mania, when Fernando Mania, when when Venezuela was pitching for the Dodgers. I mean, it just became like this whole big cultural phenomenon 
for the a lot of the Mexican communities and for the Taiwanese and, and the Asian American communities too. It kind of wound up being something along that line. Thank you, Perry. You just had to sneak in the Dodger line right there, right? You just you had you had to go back and make it all about the Dodgers. You can't let Chen Wang shine on his own. Yeah, because there's also there's you know Dodgers always set precedents for for different things. And oh my God, here we go! I shouldn't another, even start it. I shouldn't this, even start. Let's go back to the Yankees. Let's let's talk about the Yankees. And, and the and the Yankees. I mean the Yankees. I mean the thing about his composure. Yes, that was a big draw. But really, his draw is like his drop, which they explain he throws about ninety percent of the time. And yeah. that and that's where that late life comes in because that thing probably has a movement of maybe about a foot. It looks like probably has a baby a foot to about 15 inches. But that thing is just like it's coming right in at about 90s. Then just boom, it just drops like it fell off a cliff. It's really beautiful to see him. I mean, to see those live captures of, of him pitching to, to really yeah. see that. It's like, wow, man. The thing was, was that at that time when he was in the majors, I really wasn't interested in baseball. So I'd never really, really kind of heard about this guy. So I was glad that I kind of see documentary about him. Through all the stories, and because there's stories that from like his agent, um, from all of his various coaches, some of his friends that, that he met through baseball, like possible room or teammates and stuff like that, that you you're able to piece together uh, who he is, which is like I mean, that's that's what they do in documentaries. So I mean, it's what did you find? I, I think um, I think just mentioning back to those years of the Yankee teams, it's such an interesting time, just because, like you said, it, I. He was, it's not that he, he no one knew who he was, it's just very brief. He had two outstanding years where he was uh, competing with Cy Youngs, but at the same time, two of these were towards the end of the Joe Torre, Joe Torre years, started the Joe Girardi years. And he has those two great years. And then 2009, uh, he gets hurt and he's on that World Series team, but doesn't compete in the World Series that eventually beats the Phillies. And then he's gone. After that, he he hurts himself. The Yankees end up letting him go. He comes back. He then he has that shoulder problem. He gets up surgeries. He comes back with the Nationals. And after that, it's an uphill climb trying to him to get back. And that's where it pretty much this documentary picks up and on that trail of him coming back. And so, you know, I was really happy to see that they got substantial footage of him, not only at the nationals levels when you went back to the nationals but also i don't want to say the minor leagues are going low but he is definitely at the lowest point you can think about as somebody trying to come back and being released and looking for places and his agents really tried to advocate for him so i mean it just goes to show you just the life of of an everyday ball player because if you're not one of the big league superstars you're living this guy's life just traveling from a minor league stadium to minor league stadium trying to make ends meet you know taiwan i mean taiwan is not geographically it's not a big country but apparently there's you know what did they say i think 25 27 million people who live in, in taiwan and so it's it's a pretty compacted area so for him to come out of that of that of that country maintain those ties to to taiwan they, they mentioned that the day after he pitches up to like 300,000 additional newspapers, Taiwanese newspapers are sold. So it shows that how much an impact he's having upon his fellow countrymen and, and, and women. The thing though, is that he also, this leads him also to uh, a tremendous amount of endorsements, uh, not just in Taiwan, but throughout all of, of Asia. And so I have a feeling and they never they never ever talk about money in this in this situation but you, you see how the way he the way he travels around really you know hopping from one um, minor league team to the next even going to an independent league that's not even you know really uh, like organized into anything uh, structural other than just like you know just independent teams playing each other so I have I have this really strange feeling this is kind of the way that I took at it the first time was that this guy was like a multimillionaire and yeah, he had these dreams of, of, of playing, you know, professional baseball and he did it, you know, he did, but now he wants to get back into it. 
but you know, I, it kind of reminded me of like the of, of retired of a, like a retired old man who plays golf like every day, because he can afford to play golf every day, and that's just what he does. That's like yeah. how I enjoy the rest of my life. And so I was kind of getting that from him too, because this, this was not an issue of money. Yeah, this was not an issue of of really fame. This is the issue of of him sticking his mind to this goal that he wants to continue to play active baseball. His actions and the stories from his like from his agent Alan Alan uh, Chang and his wife too. I mean, they they're all saying they're all kind of like explain his emotional states and the reasons why he's going into this, whereas he never really you know states yeah. it. All he yeah. states are the facts, like my arm doesn't hurt after I pitch 100 pitches. Yeah, there's one mention where they do, where he does come out and say, it's not about the pension. If I get 10 years in the majors, I get a pension. But it's not about that. It's about my need to compete. And I thought it was sincere. I thought it was a sincere moment. And But I, I do think you're right. He must be like wealthy enough to where it's not an issue for him, where he can just compete on on his own terms and do the life he wants. Yeah, I mean, even like even his wife, his wife says that she knows that he's not the same pitcher, but it's only his spirit that remains. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's, it's weird to use it, you know, well, in the translation, they use this word spirit. So his desire to, you know, to, to play baseball is, is just like a tremendous to see this, see this man, you know, go through it and have all these people really talk about him. But there comes this point were a um i think she's probably like a tv journalist maybe a tv host news host or something like that she starts speaking about him and she's saying that of course like he's the most popular uh taiwanese you know citizen and that he possesses the uh, qualities of a good taiwanese person which is hardworking, humble he encapsulates the taiwanese working man ethic and culture so I was just like, wow. And that right there kind of like changed my whole mind on it because I was just, first I was just like, ah, this is just like some rich dude wants to, he's just driving around the country. In fact, you know, he drives at night and it's, and he's putting on thousands of miles on these, you know, cars, rental cars or whatever. And I'm thinking, this is kind of like some like serial killer type of crazy dude that you know, just drives around, you know, just looking for his next game or his next hunt. That's why I kind of thought, but it wasn't until she makes that point that realize these are like the, the, the ethos that's installed in him growing up in, inside that country, inside that culture. And he just continues to practice it. So, yeah, a, a couple of, a couple of movies that, that I would categorize kind of like in this, in this type of sense is one of course is, is the documentary hoop dreams from like, mm -hmm. what is that? The early nineties maybe. And yeah. hoop dreams, the, the two young kids who have dreams of playing in the, in the, in, in the in NBA and then you follow their development over many, many years. So the, this one kind of reminds me of that. But also just as a as a film, a piece of film work dealing with just the the, the inner the inner thinkings of a athlete and how it affects their, their play. And this is a natural raging bull. This is a natural. Those two like think I think they fit fit well with each other. Okay. This movie is of course available on Netflix. You can watch it on Netflix right now. It is a pretty clean and wholesome movie. There's, it's probably like 90% um, subtitles. So if you're like one who avoids subtitles, then this movie, you you have to read it. Unless you speak, you know, that, that dialect that they use inside uh, Taiwan. Which is now going to take us to the next movie. And this is a, a choice of ponchos. Why don't you bring in our mature movie that, for today? So our mature movie is going to be Fences. It's a movie that was directed by Denzel Washington, who also stars in the film alongside Viola Davis. The movie was based on the Pulitzer Prize winning by the same name and written by August Wilson. Fences is one of 10 plays that as a collection have been come to known as the Pittsburgh cycle or century cycle because of the setting it takes place in Pittsburgh and Wilson's ultimate goal was to write a play on the African-American experience for each decade in the 20th century. Wilson was largely an autodidact who began reading black authors at the age of 12 in the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh. 
A majority of his plays were written in the 1980s when he was between 35 to 45 years of age. His work, while well-recognized, won two Pulitzers, one for Fences, which also won a Tony, and the other Pulitzer for the piano lesson. He hasn't been able to crack any particular canon, whether African-American or US literary canons. He always seemed not people's first choice to study, which makes Denzel's attempt to produce his plays into films that much more poignant, because I think his project does offer a unique way to capture the African-American experience. I do want to follow up with that idea of thinking about August Wilson's play, Place in the Literature World, because I think that when he's working with during the 80s, I, I, I don't think it's really movement-based. It's not about empowerment of the African-American community about rising to the top. No, I mean, these are people who suffer. So I think Wilson's very engaged in people who are suffering and where they're suffering at in the places. So I, I think they're about the spaces people carve out. So the plays are not just about the lives of black Americans. They're, they're also about the spaces they live in where they shop, eat, drink, and talk about their emotions and feelings. And there's an interesting part where all three characters, Troy Maxson, Lyons, his firstborn son, and their friend Bono, who are sitting around there talking about being men, what kind of fathers they wanted to be, what kind of fathers they had. So it's also about being intergenerational. So I think these two aspects of being not only about the, the spaces they suffered in, but also the intergenerational trauma that they all also inherited. My daddy came on through, but I ain't never knew him to see him. Or what he had on his mind, or where he went. Just moving on through, searching out to new land. That's what the old folks used to call it. See a fella moving around from place to place, woman to woman? Call it searching out to new land. Huh? I can't say if he ever found it. Mm -hmm. I come along, didn't want no kids. I didn't know if I was going to be in one place long enough to fix on them right as a daddy. I figured I was going searching too. As it turned out, I've been hooked up with Lucille near about as long as your daddy been with Rose. Going on 16 years. Sometimes I wish I'd never known my daddy. He ain't care nothing about no kids. A kid to him wasn't nothing. All he wanted you to do was learn how to walk so he could start you to working. Come to eating, he ate first. Anything left over, that's what you got. Man, well, sit down, eat two chickens, and give you the wing. You ought to stop that, Pop. <laughs> everybody feed their kids. Mm. No matter how hard times <laughs> is, everybody care about their kids. Make sure they have something to eat. Only thing my daddy cared about was getting them bales of cotton into Mr. Lubin. That's the only thing that mattered to him. Sometimes I used to wonder why he was still living, why the devil hadn't come and got him. Get them bales of cotton into Mr. Lubin. Find out he owe him money. He should have just went on and left when he saw he couldn't get nowhere. That's what I would have done. How you gonna leave with 11 kids and where you gonna go? He ain't knew nothing but how to farm. No, he was trapped. I think he knew it too, but I'll say this for him. He felt a responsibility toward us, may not have treated us like I felt he should have, but without that responsibility, he could have run off and left us, made his own way. A lot of them did. Back in those days, what you talking about? Mm -hmm. They walk out the front door and take off down one road another and just keep on walking. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Just keep on walking till they come to something else. Ain't you never heard of nobody having the walking blues? Uh, that's what you call it when you just take off like that. Mm, the clip showed how these three men have different views of what fatherhood is and different gener intergenerational aspects, especially one with Bono, where Bono's thinking about not having a father and thinking about what kind of father he would have liked to have. So that's what I think is very poignant about in terms of what August Wilson does in his plays and in his movies. I do want to remind everybody that Denzel Washington and Viola Davis are reprising the roles from 2010 where they had a revival of Fences on Broadway. So they're very immersed in these characters. These are characters that they know well. And then, so it's really good that Denzel took charge to direct this. And of course now, you also have the Mulroney's Black Bottom that also he helped produce. And we're going to be able, be able to see hopefully much more August Wilson plays on being produced into movies. I, I have one question for you. 
Pinchy Pancho. This month's um, show is dedicated to baseball. What does this movie have to do with baseball? I mean, I have no problem with the movie. I just need to understand what it has to do with baseball. Yeah. And why you chose it for that. The the lead character, Troy Maxson, who Denzel plays, he was a Negro League player who never really got his shot to play Major League Baseball. He was too old by the time he got integrated. In his eyes, Troy Maxson believes that he could have made it still at the age of 40, but because he wasn't given a chance, he has tethered that denial to every single aspect African-Americans were denied to do. So he saw it as a natural progression from the structural racism that was already inherent in the United States. So this was another way that African-Americans were being denied. And so it becomes a metaphor for him for playing baseball, for trying to succeed at baseball. And he uses all these metaphors within the play of striking out, of needing to hit. And it's the way he understands the world, not only because it's a world that he felt that he could have succeeded in, but ultimately is, he felt it's being denied. And then so in his backyard, he hangs out and tries to build a fence. He tries to you know, build his own structure of safety and that's left up to interpretation, but I'll throw it out at you if you, if you want to give a stab at interpreting that. Inside the film, I mean, they, they state that you know, the fence is for keeping people out, but also keeping people in. Yeah. And so I think, I think that, it's a playing field too, right? The the idea of fences on a baseball field keep everything on in play. Yeah, and and to to have him talk to have him talk about baseball, sure in the hell I'm not saying that everything was fine as far as race relations at that time that is being depicted in this film because it wasn't. But Jackie Robinson had entered the league. Once again, some Dodger fodder for you, but he acts like it didn't really happen and that it's just some kind of like a ploy or a trick that they're playing. So the, so this whole thing about success, about American success is put into this metaphor of baseball, but the way that, that Wilson attacks it, I mean, even like in the, in the backyard, he he's drilled a hole in through the middle of a baseball and has put a rope through it and then he's tied it to a, a tree. So, Anytime you see a rope tied to a tree, I mean, immediately you start thinking, you know, lynching. But yeah. at the end of this is baseball. So it's, it's kind of like his career was basically, he, he was a victim of lynching by this career. Mm-hmm. So he's blaming the racial system of America on his failure to, to, to be successful. But at that time he played in the Negro leagues and, and he was, a, you know, they explained that he was an outstanding player. So in a sense, he's not recognizing what he has achieved, what he was, he had achieved up to that point. He felt that racism didn't allow him to, to achieve as much as he should have, which is, I mean, which is true. It's valid. But when he starts applying that to outside of his own personal experience that's where the drama is is in effect and that's what leads to problems with not only with his son his youngest son but also with his wife the performances inside this this movie are just they're phenomenal and, yeah and you I, can tell you can tell that they've worked with these characters already right they they, they understood the goal i mean especially viola davis it, it, it was just amazing to see yeah, I mean, they, they thoroughly they captured the essence of these characters and they, they performed them with fucking with just such a precision and eloquence that it was just like, it's a tremendous feel on it. But the thing, really the, the star of, of this movie and of August Wilson's plays are his dialogues. And Wilson, I mean, he, August Wilson pretty much was successful later on in his life. Yeah, he didn't get anything published. He wasn't even recognized until he, he, I believe, until he got into his forties. Yeah, but he, what he did as as in Pittsburgh, is he sat at a bar every day, you know, with his notepad out, and he would listen to people talk, and he would write down verbatim what they were saying, and then he would he would use all these bullets that he this ammunition that he collected, and as he was writing his plays, he could always reference back to these 
actual languages of, of words that people actually said. So he's able to capture, like I said, I, he's able to capture that realness of the language. And because it's a, a working man's language, it's a language that both um, Denzel Washington and, and Davis are familiar with. It's easy for them to, to grasp that, that dialogue and run with it and, and be, be the artist who they are. And that's like the beautiful thing about this film. Yeah, yeah there's an interesting contrast between um, everyday vernacular and then when he's just being very poetic, right? I mean, he goes into these, uh, you know, beautiful dialogues. Each character has at least one beautiful dialogue that they're they're able to to have as their own. And just hearing those, those are great. But I, I do like the everyday conversations about going down to the AMP, about which bar they're drinking at, about Miss Pearl, like... Gabe's going down to Miss Pearls, just that kind of language, everyday language that people talk. It's just, for me, it was, it was really good to hear that kind of stuff. And and the spaces, like I said, the spaces of where the African community lived in, because it's not just about what they're going through, but, you know, where do they sit down? And for you saying, you know, August Wilson sat at a bar, he was concerned with people who were coming in and out of a bar. And I do, and it does show up in the work that, these are your everyday people. Yeah. You know, every every year in Los Angeles, uh, the, the students from LA Unified School District participate in a monologue, in an August Wilson monologue contest. Mm-hmm. And this has been going on for actually quite a few years. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he, he does. He has earned and he is receiving a lot of recognition and respect for his work. Yeah, now now he is, but I wouldn't say back yeah. in the 90s. I think a, a lot of the problem was, like, again, it's not very what we would consider movement literature. And number two, it's working with plays. So, it, I mean, plays were only going to be accessible to a certain amount of audiences. So it, I, I think probably by the late 90s, yeah. you start having, like, community theater groups being able to, or African-American theater groups being able to re- reproduce these plays. I remember I saw Jitney Bus in San Francisco by the uh, African-American theater company in San Francisco. So by then they're, you know, they're getting, they're really moving into things. But I think there's a big gap between the eighties when these things were like winning Tonys and Pulitzers. But honestly, I think it was of the white audience who were just watching them. It wasn't. It hasn't yet transformed into community theater. Well, you know what, what I know of of like the black community, the African American uh, theater uh-huh. experience is that there is there is a tremendous amount of support for, especially for smaller productions, smaller community productions. That's where I mean, they're all in. They're all yeah. in on on theater. In fact, they're they're much more in on on theater than say like the the, the Latinx community. Yeah. So there's yeah. I'm, I'm not saying yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying that. You know, I, I'm not saying that they're not. I'm just saying where did, said, like, in terms true. of the in terms of the '80s, where August Wilson was producing his plays in Yale. I, I don't think a lot of people. He was not on a lot of people's radar at that time, other than the, the, the Tony Awards winner and the Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, you know, I I I love the film. Is there any other? Any other films that you would pair? If you're going to do a double feature with Fences, what would be another movie that you would pair with it? I would pair it with um, A Raisin in the Sun, Lorraine Hansberry's uh, adaptation into film, only because of the language, the playwrights, the issues. And I, I think it's, you know, thinking about African-Americans and, and plays, I think it would be a good one to, to do. I think the other one I would probably think of is Boys in the Hood, a story about a father and son. I think it doesn't have the kind of playwright language that Wilson uses, but it has those issues of how do we raise sons? So so th- this is this movie would fall into the theme of baseball and fatherhood, which strange but, enough, which strange enough late life actually deals a lot with fatherhood too inside of it. So yeah. those are, you know I actually I would I'd pair these two with you know late life and fences. Um, mm-hmm. I I like I like raising the sun. I think that's a good pairing. 
But I think, uh, if anything, uh, bad news bears goes to Japan. <laughs> bad news bears go to Japan would be the other one that I would <laughs> that I would pair with it. Uh, Fences is um, currently it makes its way in and out of all the different streaming channels. But uh, currently, this one was not available, so you just kind of have to see uh, where you could pick this one up. With we had to do a rental on it, which I didn't mind because I love this movie. So. Uh, also, um, it's it has a, uh, some strong language. It has some strong language in it, and uh, but it's also you know a very working class type of language. So you know might be stuff that that people already the type of talk that people already do around their house. But uh, there's um, there isn't any nudity, and um, it's just a really deep examination of of the human character. So it may not be appropriate for younger kids because they just not getting it and not understanding what's going on. Which takes us over to the last movie of that we're going to be looking at in this show. In our classic category, we have Bang the Drum Slowly, which is a 1973 American sports drama f- film directed by John D. Hancock. It's about Bruce, a baseball player who is who's not the smartest apple on the team. You know, he's, he's low on the pole of intellectual proudness i should say but but it's played by a young robert de niro who has his character bruce has who's a catcher has been diagnosed with hoskins disease and his friend and teammate henry played by michael moriarty is the team's most valuable pitcher and player who is much more smarter and much more skilled as a teammate than bruce is uh, so as a, as, a, as a catcher so knowing nothing about Bruce, Bruce's faith, fate, excuse me, the manager Dutch is prepared to release Bruce in favor of a hot young prospect. And Henry, a holdout looking for a bigger contract, ends his holdout and agrees to a new contract under one condition, that he and Bruce come as a package. Tell him your claws. Oh, so it's you with a special clothes author. I'll bet it's a dilly. Bradley, run get me a wet rag, huh? Everybody thinks they're special. Sterling must be shot for hay fever with medicine made out of the piss of a horse. Carucci must have contact lenses. Gonzalez must have a buddy along to translate in Spanish, and Goldman must go home for Passover. What do you want now, Walter? Chinese New Year's? I want a clause tying me in a package with Pearson. I bet he owes you money. Jesus, Bradley. You ain't got much straight in your hands. What do you mean, tying the package? If he's sold, I must be sold. Or if he's traded, I must be traded same place. Wherever he goes, I go. Well, this is telling me who I was keeping or not which nobody ever told me before and nobody will ever tell me again as long as I'm upright. If it's money, talk money and good luck. They own all the banks. Talking money is one thing, but talking business is another. And I'd as soon as trade the whole club for a tin of beans as leave anyone tell me who stays and who gets cut loose. I'm sorry to hear that because without that clause, there'll be no contract. Well, then there'll be no contract and I must suffer long the best I can. Several of those young pitchers looked good out there yesterday. Yeah? Good for what? Uh, Bang the Drum Slowly is a film adaptation of the classic 1956 baseball novel called The Southpaw by the American author Mark Harris, who also writes the screenplay for this film. The director, John D. Hancock, is an Obie Award-winning theater director and was nominated for an Oscar with his 1970 short film Sticky My Fingers. Fleet My Feet. Bang the Drum Slowly is definitely his most well-known movie. And this early film marks De Niro's second major role before joining forces with Martin Scorsese and Mean Street, which was actually released two months before Bang the Drum Slowly came out. So, you know what? This film, it was a film that I saw when I was young because I loved baseball, playing baseball. I just had, you know, this natural affinity toward it. There's a couple of things inside the film that I thought were were tremendous. First of all, I thought you know De Niro's performance was was just tremendous in the in the film. He actually 
he stayed a couple of months during spring training with a, a minor league team and then uh, spent time in Georgia just picking up the accent. So he did his research for this for this film and he comes off like the, almost like this dolt inside the film. And so it's, it's a tremendous, I mean, it's tremendous. You could tell that he car- he carries some of those characteristics over into Bean Street, which happens a couple of uh, months later. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really good film. The relationship between the, of course, if, if anyone's you know, played baseball deep, there's always a, a strong relationship between pitchers and catchers. And so, but no one on, on the team that can really figure out why these these guys are 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 friends, especially Dutch, the manager, who becomes a, kind of like obsessed with this, trying to get down to the bottom of this story about why why Bruce and Henry were, were meeting up during the off season. The real reason was because the, the movie starts off them leaving the Mayo Clinic, you know, understanding that you know the guy may be sick or something like that, but they want to keep all that secret, so. Henry never never gives the manager an explanation of why um, he's including them in this clause, which is just like a tremendous uh, offering to include pretty much average, not so much average, a baseball player in, into a contract of a major uh, major league star. I, I you know the thing also about this movie too is that it's a plethora of B movie stars are stars who are solid performers, but never really kind of like took on major, major roles. Excuse me, like for example, Dutch is being played by Vincent Gardenia, who is, he's probably, his, his probably best well-known um, role was being the father in uh, Moonstruck with Cher. And so he kind of plays like this, you know, New York Italian father, and he's got that down lock. In fact, I don't think he's, in fact, he probably uses that same type of uh, character for every single role that he has. But Gardena was actually a very accomplished actor and he made his careers through television and, and movie appearances. And once you see him, if you don't know him by name, it's you like, oh man, I've seen that guy dozens of times. The, the film is very interesting how Mark Harris, the writer, which areas of his novel that he, he chooses to um, to focus on, like for example, the whole thing about this card game Teg War, the exciting game without any rules, which is just kind of like a bullshit way of of hustling people out of their money. That winds up being like you know the kind of like one of the central points of how the the story arc is is, is carried on, developed, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, they have that. They they use that. They also use. The secret, which gets unfurled little by little until everyone knows, and I don't know. I just felt like I was being strung along a little too much, and I, you know, the Dutch. I'm gonna investigate, and I will find the truth, and I will know. And I just thought it just consumed so much of of the story, like, it, and it shouldn't have. Like, is that the basis of the story? Is uh, is Dutch investigation, and it just took too much i thought tag war was too much one idea you know you do it once i get the idea but i just found it very thin in that regards like why are you using the same uh, same trope over and over and over again i'm not getting anything out of it as audience i i didn't think it was honestly i thought this movie was an after school special at best um i think people i think you're romanticizing De Niro, because you've seen De Niro's later work, and it's cool to see him as a young actor. Oh, wow, that's cool. Look, he's playing like, he has like a George and Lenny relationship in this movie. And I think if you look at this by its own, and De Niro doesn't have the career that he has later, this movie wouldn't be all that be interesting. I think it's just that interesting fact that, yeah, a few months later, he comes out of Mean Streets and practically steals every scene. And I, you know, does he do that in this movie? I don't think he does that in this movie. I don't think he carries any scene. I think, um, I think Michael Moriarty is okay. I, I like the fact that you, you brought up the B actors. I do like seeing um, Frank DeFazio, Laverne's, Laverne DeFazio's father in it, who's played Phil Foster. 
plays Frank DePazio on the radio show. It's good to see him. It's good to see Danny Aiello in it too. But honestly, I don't know. This movie is too thin. It's, it's, it's way too thin. And it's all about a secret that gets told and it brings the team together in the end. And yeah, okay. I moved on very easily. It, well, for me, it, it wasn't. A, it wasn't about the the story of the the. It wasn't about the story of the team coming together. This, the, for me, the story was the relationship between the, the the pitcher and the catcher, between Henry and <laughs> Bruce. But I, I understand what you're talking about when you when you were you know kind of like figuring this was like after after school special you called it, which yeah we under kind of understand if you understand what the after school special is. But film is is shot in two places. One is in Yankee, old Yankee Stadium, and also in Shea Stadium, which no longer exists. So they shot these both. I mean, the, everything is shot either in the Bronx or in Queens at these two stadiums. And they do field shots of the, of the team actually playing, like a, a base hit gets hit over here and stuff like that. But their, their positioning and their, their actual um, skills as actors are not baseball players. So it's kind of like, wow, that, you know. These guys are playing like a softball team rather than a major league team, but it actually gets picked up a little bit later. I mean, you could you could tell that their skills are are coming through, but they also embed all of this major league baseball footage into there. So you think that they're playing, you, know, you think that they're playing the Oakland A's. You think that they that they just threw out Reggie Jackson trying to steal second base. Um, that's the part that's kind of funny. Also, too, I mean, these guys are wearing their their uniforms are pinstripe. They have an NY on the left, you know, breast on it. And they're, they're dark blue hats with NY on them. And you're like, okay, they must be the Yankees. But it's not. They never explicitly explained that it's the Yankees. That's they said they're the mammoths. The mammoths, that's right. That's right. I think, like I said, I think the story is between these two characters and, and kind of what they what they go on through. And, and if you look at De Niro's performance and just on that character, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that happens inside there. But once again... All of these B actors, even including someone like Selma Diamond, who plays like yeah, Selma Diamond's in it. That's right. Plays a hotel operator. I mean, these are just like all classic stuff. So, you know, I have to look at the history of it. But to be honest, I mean, the guy who made the film, um, the guy, the the director, he is actually like I said, he's he's uh, um, John D. Hancock. He was actually a theater producer. And this was like by far, he, he wound up doing like three or four more films, or probably more than that, but nothing even remotely close to, to bang the drum slowly. The movie, like I said, it's, I thought it was, you know, a, it, it's kind of a good family movie because as a baseball player, when I saw it when I was young, I just had, you know, feelings toward, you know, movies that depicted baseball players. And then I felt like, oh, this relationship that they have with each other. And these guys are like really, I mean, they're like really good friends. And and I would love to have that type of relationship, you know, with, with, with good friends. And so for me, it was it was kind of, you know, very rudimentary type of an emotional response uh, to a, kind of a cheesy film. And I would agree it's, it's a little bit cheesy, but there is some merits that, that sit within it. What about like Brian's song? What would you compare it to Brian's song? That is exactly the movie that that I would. If I was going to compare it with anything, it would be with Brian's song, the the story about Brian Piccolo and and um, Gail Sayers, uh, played by James Caan and Billy D. Williams. Also, you know, and I think this is probably more uh, significant, if anything. I would pair this movie with Love Story which is another cheesy type of love movie about Ali McGraw with Ali McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. And Ali McGraw gets diagnosed with cancer and she slowly fades. Her character slowly dies at the end. She's preparing all this stuff to pass on to her daughter. So is it very, another 70s movie? Yeah. In fact, it came out like three years before. before all these 70s movies have yeah. the same kind of sad music, sad songs. But there, the one there is one movie that I think that people <clears throat> should, if you are interested in watching Bang the Drum slowly, you have to watch and it's on YouTube. The movie that you have to see is the the U.S. Steel Hour Bang the Drum slowly, which was the, the actually the first adaptation of the of the novel by Mark Harris, 
So Mark Harris does a one-hour uh, teleplay of Bang the Drum Slowly, but the Henry is played by Paul Newman. And Paul Newman's performance in there is tremendous. If we had Paul Newman be the pitcher and Robert De Niro be the catcher, man, that would be the combination to watch it. And, you know, actually, I enjoyed the, the TV version of, of Bang the Drum Slowly more than I did the movie version. The, the the U.S. Steel version, which, like I said, is on YouTube, it starts before they get to the Mayo Clinic. So about half of the play is making its way up to the Mayo Clinic, and then the rest half is after the Mayo Clinic. But there's definitely bleed-through between the play and the, and the movie, and there's uh, three or four specific scenes that they carry from the TV over to the movie. So it's a, it's a good way to, to, to watch to watch this film. Oh, another thing about it, um, of course, it could be a family movie. In fact, it, it, it's like 99.9% .9 family movie because of the language. There's no, there's no heavy language in it. It's all pretty easy to understand. But there comes a locker room scene inside there. Where the, oh, man. Oh. The, the, guy just, the guy comes oh. out just wearing his jock strap, and he's just showing ham. He's just, he's just wearing... He just got ham showing, just like yeah. Like, Someone ordered a dish of moon over my hand. My hammies on that one, man. A hairy ham <laughs> makes its appearance inside there, along with <laughs> along with tons of actors that at some point appeared on Love, a Love Boat, which I, I think is probably like the next one. Anything else you want to touch on? No, that's it. We should introduce June. That's gonna do for this installment. I, in next month. In June, we have selected, of course, it's it's Pride Month, so we're going to be looking at uh, three films that deal, three stories that, that deal with um, characters or stories of, of folks from the uh, gay, lesbian, queer, transgender, questioning, all those different uh, soup, alphabet soup uh, letters. And uh, we're also going to have a guest inside here. I know two of the movies have already been selected, and which movies were those? The, the two movies that we chose for June are going to be The Way He Looks, a movie about a, a gay blind teen in Brazil. And we are also going to look at Strangers on a Train by Alfred Hitchcock. And our third movie will be decided by our guest. And I'll see you then. And Darren, if you can take us out. Yeah, we'll. I'll surprise everyone on on the day that we have our guests, so you'll know who it is and what movie we're watching. But that's going to do it for this installment of At the Canton. I hope that you enjoyed it, and um, stay tuned for our next one at um, here at At the Canton. <laughs>